And the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Thank you for the word that you've given to us, Lord, and I'm asking that you will anoint these lips of clay, that I might speak your word, Lord, and that it will plant its seed into the heart of your people, Lord, and all who hear, Lord, this word, I pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, your word is truth, thy word, Lord, is truth, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you, we thank you. And we love you and we bless you, O oh, holy God, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, it's good to see everybody here tonight. What a crowd. And uh, as you remember, last week, last Monday, we were in uh, Genesis chapter 3, and Adam and Eve had sinned, and they had just been judged and we left them standing in the garden. They are spiritually dead, but they are not yet physically dead. As the Bible says in Hebrew, when the Bible says, thou shalt surely die, in Hebrew it is rendered dying, you will die. And that's true today. Uh, we live to a certain age and uh, we begin to go downhill right around 30 years old or so. We start aging and we begin to die. Dying, we will die. And we are continuing now in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22. And the Lord God said, behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now I want you to picture this image. Adam and Eve are being forced from the garden of Eden. They look back longingly at their old home. Now, what do they see? They see cherubim, which is a plural word. That means there is more than one. With a flaming sword between them at the east of the garden, separating them from where they once walked with God. And beyond them is the animal God had slain to cover their Nakedness. 
When we arrive at the next book in our study, the book of Exodus, we will find a familiar image. This will become a very familiar image to us because in the book of Exodus, God commanded Moses to build a tent of meeting or the tabernacle. And this was a place where God would dwell with his people. The tabernacle consisted of a courtyard with a gate at the east entrance. And upon entering the tabernacle through the door at the east end of the tabernacle, one would find himself in the holy place where the priests would minister. And there a veil was hung separating the holy place from the holy of holies. Embroidered on the veil was the likeness of cherubim. So separating the holy place from the holy of holies was a veil. And there we see cherubim guarding the way into the holy of holies. Beyond the veil, inside the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant, a golden covered box, a gold covered box, uh, which contained uh, the covenant or the testimony of God, the Ten Commandments of God inside the ark. And upon the lid of the ark, which is called the mercy seat, were formed out of gold two cherubim. And Upon the mercy seat was the blood of the sacrifices that God required as sin offerings. And man was separated from the holy of holies. He could not go in. And only the priest could minister in the holy place. But only the high priest once a year could minister within the holy of holies. He could go beyond the veil, beyond the cherubim. Into where the ark was. Now with this in mind. In light of the tabernacle. Let us look back at the garden of Eden. God met with mankind in the garden of Eden. The garden was in Eden. Eden itself was outside of the garden. And the rest of the earth was outside of Eden. Eden. Remember, the earth had not yet been divided. And that means that the earth at this time could be sectioned off or divided into three separate parts, just as the tabernacle was. And in comparing the Garden of Eden to the tabernacle, we can see the Garden of Eden was the Holy of Holies. Eden itself, which was outside the garden, remember the garden was in Eden, Eden itself was the holy place where God placed the garden, and the rest of the earth was the courtyard. Now the purpose of the tabernacle was so that God could dwell with his people. It was not like it was in the garden. Man was separated by sin. But the tabernacle represented God's first step in restoring mankind to the fellowship he had with man in the Garden of Eden. And this is the reason Jesus came. To restore the fellowship that God had with man and man had with God. 
the cherubim guarded the way to the tree of life. It guarded the way to where man dwelt with God. And I do not believe it was a coincidence that Christians were called followers of the way. All throughout the book of Acts, we are in the way. We are in the way that is back to God, the way of eternal life. And Christians were called followers of the way. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 14, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few there be that find it. I believe he is talking about the gate, not only of the tabernacle, but into Eden when it leads unto life and few there be that find it. And again, he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, where is the Garden of Eden? Now, this is a part that I almost deleted and carried on without talking about because it can be a bit controversial. And the reason that I decided to make this part of the lesson is not because it is 100% fact, um, it is only my opinion, but it is to show you how God uses types, he uses shadows, he uses similitudes, and he uses patterns throughout the Bible. So I decided to leave this in here and uh, about where the Garden of Eden is, and there's a, a lot of debate about this subject. And I want, to, uh, I want to talk a little bit about it today. And I want to begin by talking about a place called Yerushalayim. Does anybody know where Yerushalayim is? Well, it's in Israel, and its English name is Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And Israel is a nation built on a promise God gave to Abraham 4,000 years ago, God made an everlasting covenant with Abraham. His promise was both physical and it was spiritual. It was physical because God promised Abraham he would have children and they would possess all the land of Canaan. Spiritual because Abraham would have children and his seed or the seed of Abraham would bless the entire world. And we know this was a prophecy about the Messiah, the savior of mankind who would come through the lineage of Abraham. Now, what I'm about to say is strictly a Ricky Taylorism. It is my opinion and cannot be construed as doctrine or gospel truth. Still, I personally believe it. And the knowledge of it has helped me to understand more of the Bible because of it. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 25 and verse 2, it reads, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. You see, God does not tell us everything. He has hidden many things within the scriptures that he wants us to find out on our 
own. He uses types. He uses shadows and patterns throughout the Bible that he has placed there for us to discover larger truths in his word. As he said in Hosea 12.10, I have also spoken by the prophets and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. Now, a similitude is a comparison between two things or a type. And God uses types all throughout the scriptures. I will do my best to point them out to you as we continue this study. In fact, Hosea's life, uh, and you know, he said this in the book of Hosea, Hosea's life itself was a similitude. God told Hosea, uh, I want to show how my people are treating me. They are, co they are committing adultery with me. They are committing adultery against me by running after other gods, the gods that are in the nations around Israel. He considered that spiritual adultery. And to make his point, God had Hosea play out a drama, a similitude. Uh, he acted something out in his life. And he told Hosea, I want you to go and marry a woman of harlotry. And we know that Hosea did. Hosea took a woman from harlotry or of harlotry. And of course, she committed adultery against him. And the whole story played out where he redeemed her. She went after her lovers and she ended up on the auction block of sin. And, and Hosea purchased her. He redeemed her restored her back to him. And this was a similitude that God used to, as an example, as a type, as a shadow, and as a pattern. And in my opinion, God has done that here. There is a clear pattern, clear types on display, all pointing to the original lo location of the Garden of Eden. I believe the history of Jerusalem started long before Abraham, long before the land of Canaan. I believe it started in the beginning. And the major players in the drama, the similitude, were present in the beginning. Remember, the book of Genesis in Hebrew is called Bereshit, which means in the beginning. The first player in the drama was God. God created the heavens and the earth, and God created a garden in Eden. As I mentioned, the garden was in Eden. Eden was outside the garden, and the rest of the earth was outside of Eden, which uh, is the same pattern that the tabernacle appears to be of. The Holy of Holies being a type of the Garden of Eden. Where God met with man. The holy place was a type of Eden itself. And the courtyard was the rest of the earth. The next players in the drama are humankind. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he them. And the next player in the drama was Satan. The old serpent. The Deceiver. 
I believe the drama unfolded in the very place we call Jerusalem today. I believe that Jerusalem is the original location of the Garden of Eden. Now, I came to this conclusion after thinking about why God would have chosen Jerusalem as the one place on planet Earth that he would directly connect his name. And 1 Kings 11.36 declares, And unto his son will I give one tribe, that David my servant may have a light always before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen to put my name there. God chose to put his name in Jerusalem. What we see unfolding in the Bible is not an accident. You see, God had already chosen the place. Then he chose a people to inhabit that place. While studying the fall of man, and it was actually in a class just like this, my eyes fell on one word in the Bible while I was actually standing behind the pulpit, and that word was east. It was Genesis 3:24. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now, as my eyes fell on the word east, several scriptures began to flow through my mind. For instance, in Ezekiel, the glory of God entered Jerusalem, moving towards the east, and is also seen in Ezekiel departing Jerusalem toward the east, through the eastern gate, over the mountains east of Jerusalem, and finally disappearing as the glory of God departed Jerusalem, lifted from the temple and departed eastward, leaving Jerusalem because of their sins. Also in Ezekiel, the Lord said in Ezekiel 5, 5, thus saith the Lord God, I, this is Jerusalem. I have set it in the midst of the nations and countries that are round about her. So Israel is the center of the nations. Jerusalem is the center of Israel. It is the most important part. You could call it the heart of Israel. And the temple was the center of Jerusalem. Just like in the temple, there was the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. So this seems to fit a pattern. Ezekiel 28 is a passage of scripture concerning the king of Tyre. This king is identified as one who had been in Eden, the garden of God, and was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created. So this is a created being. So this is God talking to a, a king of that day and then speaking to the spiritual power which was beyond, behind the throne. Someone who was identified as being in Eden, the garden of God, and was perfect in his ways from the day that he was created. This is a created being until iniquity was found in thee, the Bible says. 
and thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. So we see that whoever this is that he's speaking of was a covering cherub, and we see as in uh, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, the cherubim are literally covering the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the throne of God itself. And this is obviously not referencing the human king of Tyre, but it was making a reference to the entity we now identify as Satan. The scripture only records three intelligent beings as dwelling in Eden. Adam, Eve, and the serpent. And the scripture is clear in identifying who the serpent was. Revelations 20 and verse 2. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan. And as we read in context with the positioning of the king of Tyre in the Garden of Eden, or Satan in the Garden of Eden. Ezekiel 28 also makes reference to the holy mountain of God. Now, in the study of Scripture, one usually finds that Scripture defines itself. As the prophet Daniel is praying on behalf of his people, we find that he makes reference to God's holy mountain. It's in Daniel 9 and verse 16. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city, Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. You will find that whenever the scriptures define something in scripture or in the Bible, in the word of God, thy holy mountain as the city of Jerusalem it will always be defined as that all throughout the scriptures. And we're actually going to get to that when we get to the prophets. But for right now, let's look at what the prophet Isaiah says. And he also identifies Jerusalem using the same terminology. Isaiah 66 and verse 20. And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all nations upon horses and in chariots and in litters and upon mules and upon swift beasts. To my holy mountain, Jerusalem, saith the Lord. As the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. Now this just affirms my belief further that Jerusalem and the Garden of Eden are one and the same in the mind of God. And I think the evidence is too strong to overlook. Now, I know that many try to place Eden elsewhere uh, using the river in Eden that flowed into four rivers as a point of reference. But there is an egregious error in this. Uh, first of all, the, there was a great flood. And that would certainly have changed the entire face of the planet. The Bible literally says that world before the flood was destroyed. In that deluge. Also understand that the earth was one landmass surrounded by water in the time of the Garden of Eden, but it is now divided into continents. Uh, but there is a latitude and a longitude where 
the Garden of Eden once was. I believe that place to be Jerusalem. To further my argument for Jerusalem being the Garden of Eden, let's consider the purpose of the gospel, which is to deliver man from the curse of sin and restore him to God. But man is not the only one under the curse. The animal kingdom, nature, and the world itself is under the curse. We are waiting for the restitution of all things, as Peter preached in Acts chapter 3, 20 to 21, where he says, And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you. So he's talking about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So as the holy prophets and the entire Old Testament speak of Jesus, uh, according to Peter, uh, all the holy prophets since the world began spoke of the restitution of all things. And restitution is, defi is defined as the restoration of something lost or stolen to its proper owner. It's talking about you and me. We were lost. God lost us when we fell into the temptation of sin. And God is restoring that which was lost and stolen. He purchased you and he purchased me with the blood of Jesus and will restore us and he will restore the earth and all of nature, redeeming it from the curse. One of the things to be restored is the Garden of Eden. We see in the garden a river and the tree of life. At the end of the Bible, we see the same thing. God restored it. And it's a beautiful thing when you compare the Bible. We are in the book of Genesis, which is a book of beginnings, which began with life. And it began with eternal life. And it began uh, with man who had a relationship with the almighty God. It began in a paradise, but it ended with paradise lost. And the book of Genesis ends with a coffin. But we see in Revelations 21.9... The Bible reads, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God. It shone from the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So we see the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. Where does it land? It lands in Israel, where Jerusalem is now in the present day. And Revelation 22, verse 1, then the angel, uh, and this, this shows us a little more detail, a more detailed picture of the new Jerusalem, Revelations 22, 1. Then the angel showed me 
the river of the water of life. Now, a river flowed out of Egypt. Now we see that there is a river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Where did we see the tree of life before? We saw it in the Garden of Eden, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. So think about that. God is going to restore the earth from the curse and he will restore the Garden of Eden. And where is that going to take place? In modern day Jerusalem. If my supposition is true that Jerusalem and the Garden of Eden are one and the same, it sheds a lot of light on what is truly happening today concerning Jerusalem. You're talking about a very small city, and yet it is a boiling pot to the entire world. The entire world goes to war over that city. There is a war being fought over God's holy city. Satan usurped the authority of this world from Adam, but the restitution of all things is coming. Satan will do everything in his power to stop it. He wants to be worshipped as God in the temple of God. He wants Jerusalem for himself. And that is the underlying reason for all the trouble in Jerusalem. Can I tell you that if you're anti-Semitic, that if you're anti-Israel, you are on the wrong side. God is pro-Israel. God is pro-Jerusalem. Amen. And any nation that would exalt itself against her will come down. Look at Britain today. It fell down. It decided that it would not uh, support Israel in becoming a nation in 1948. And now Britain is just a husk of the glory that it used to be. Amen. And on the contrary, America, the United States, has a history of being a strong supporter of Israel. And all the time that we have supported Israel, God has blessed us. Because that is the promise he gave to Abraham. I will bless them who bless you and curse those who curse you. So when God called Abraham, there was a specific place that God promised to give him as a possession for his descendants. That was the land of Israel. When he tested Abraham's faith by commanding him to sacrifice his son Isaac, he did not tell him where he was going. Abraham did not choose the place that the sacrifice was to, was, was to happen. But God led Abraham to a certain mountain that I will show you. And Abraham, according to the scripture, traveled three days. So Abraham's son, and God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son. And we have to understand that Abraham had more than one son. Ishmael was also the son of Abraham. 
But God said, take your son, your only son. Why did he do this? Because God was, uh, God was showing a pattern. He was, he was showing a similitude. He had a drama that he wanted played out by this man, Abraham, the father of many nations, and his only begotten son. And this only begotten son was dead to Abraham for three days. He considered him as good as dead because God had told him to take his son and sacrifice him on a certain mountain that he would show him. What mountain did God show him? It was Mount Moriah. And it's a wonderful story. I don't want to get too far ahead because we are in the book of Genesis and this story is coming soon. But I will share this with you. Isaac was not a little boy. And a lot of us believe that he was because we went to Sunday school and we saw old father Abraham with his eight or nine or ten year old son uh, bound and lying on, on an altar. But in reality, Isaac was right around the age of 30 years old. And he could have overpowered Abraham at any time. And the father, Abraham, and the son, Isaac, went up this mountain. And the Bible says that Isaac carried the wood of the sacrifice. And we know that Jesus carried the cross. We have the Father and we have his only begotten Son. And the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the Father took his only begotten Son, and the Son went willingly of his own volition. He did not have to go. And he carried the wood of his own sacrifice. And when they finally reached the top of Mount Moriah to the place of sacrifice, uh, Isaac said, here is the wood and here is the fire. But where is the sacrifice? And Abraham said, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. That place, Mount Moriah, was taken in battle by King David from the Jebusites. And it was there that David set up his kingdom in the city we know of as Jerusalem. And it was in that very spot on Mount Moriah when David numbered the children of Israel contrary to the law of God, that God sent a plague upon Israel. And David looked and the angel of the Lord stood with a sword. And as he moved throughout the city, the, the, uh, the plague began to kill the multitude. And David was told uh, to build an altar to God and make a sacrifice and he built an altar and he made a sacrifice on the threshing floor of Arona which is precisely where Abraham took Isaac and the angel of the Lord when he saw the sacrifice he stopped and he sheathed his sword and in Hebrew he said it is finished in that spot Solomon, near that spot, Solomon built the temple. And near that spot, Jesus Christ, 2,000 years later, would hang 
on an old rugged cross as God provided himself a sacrifice. Amen. It was this similitude. It was this drama that God had Abraham play out. And where did he do it? In in Jerusalem. And just as Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Jesus Christ the Savior of the world and the propitiation of our sins, the Redeemer of mankind hung upon a tree. And I do not believe that just before his crucifixion, I do not believe that it was an accident, it was a coincidence that Jesus prayed in a garden. I believe that Jesus paid the price of sin in the place where the sin was originally Committed. And when Jesus comes again, he will set his foot on the Mount of Olives eastward from Jerusalem. There's that word again. And enter Jerusalem through the east gate as man was removed from the Garden of Eden and cherubim were placed on the eastward part of Eden to keep man out. Jesus will enter the eastern gate preparing the way for man to return. He is restoring. He is making restitution. He is restoring all things. And I would say to the original, but as far as I can see in the scripture, it is going to be far, far, far better. In fact, if you can imagine what it's going to be like it's going to be better than that because eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared. Amen for those who love him. Now I want you to remember, hallelujah, that the purpose God has concerning the scripture is to restore us unto him and to teach us what we need to know here on earth. Genesis chapter 4. And we now come to Genesis chapter 4. And we'll begin in verse 1. And Adam knew his wife. And she conceived and bare Cain. And said I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. Now I want you to remember what I said. About the purpose of God. Concerning the scripture. Because the purpose is not to list a complete and exhaustive history. And it is not to list the genealogy. Uh, every child that was born to Adam and Eve. And uh, upon reading the scripture many assume that at this time Adam and Eve had only two children. Uh, Cain and Abel. I do not believe that to be true. What we know for sure is that Cain was firstborn and Abel was born afterwards. We will see in the next chapter the genealogy of Adam to Noah. And we will see that Adam had lived 130 years when Seth was born to him. And we know that Seth was born shortly after the story of Cain and Abel. We often think of Cain and Abel as young men when in fact... They were likely much older, perhaps 100 or more 
years old with children already of their own. Imagine that. If Adam and Eve had children, and their children had children, over the space of 100 years, you have to understand they lived to a very old age. A man could easily be 300, 400, 500 years old and still only appear to be 30 or 40, and still able, and a woman still able to bear children, to have and to bear children. And it seems to me that Cain was born soon after the fall, and Seth was born when Adam was 130 years old. Um, and Eve saw Seth as a replacement granted by God to replace her loss of Abel. So imagine that if over the space of 100 years they continued to have children, there may be hundreds or even thousands of offspring because the growth is exponential. They continue to have children, and their children have children, and their children have children. And so it could be hundreds, even thousands of people on earth at this time. And I believe that Cain was right around 120 years old, and Abel likely not much younger than Cain. Still, the focus is not on genealogy at this point. God is not concerned with that in this chapter, though he becomes very concerned about it in chapter 5 because the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ begins in chapter 5. Right now, he is showing us a very important principle using these two figures, Cain and Abel. Verse 2, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why... Is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Now this is better translated as sin desires you, but you must overcome it. Now I'm sure Cain brought the best of his fruit to the Lord. He was a tiller of the ground, and he brought to the Lord the work of his hands. I don't believe that he went out and he got the throwaways or the misformed fruit that no one would buy, but he brought the best of the work of his hands. But remember that Adam and Eve tried to cover their sins by sowing fig leaves together. But instead, God slew an animal and made them coats of animal skins because God requires a blood sacrifice for sin. It is and always has been a life for a life. Hebrews 9 and verse 22 reads, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. 
The only sacrifice God accepts for the remission of sins is the blood of Jesus Christ. Our works will never be enough. Not the works of our hands. Not anything that we can do. We may spend our lives feeding the orphans or helping widows, but our works apart from the blood of Jesus will not save us. My friend, I'm telling you, if you were to stop sinning right now, completely stop at whatever age you're at, and you were able under your own power to stop sinning, no longer sin, which I do not believe is possible for fallen man. But if you were, and you would dedicate the rest of your life to doing good and doing good things and helping others, your works could never save you. Not the works of your hands. You will die in your sins. Cain's fruit represents works and worldly religion. And the works of our hands... Is worldly religion. If that's what we're relying on for our salvation, it is worldly religion. Of course, as Christians, we will have works, but they are not works to gain our salvation. They are works because we have salvation. And religion does not lead to heaven. The death of Jesus on the cross does. Cain had faith. In the works of his hands. And believed that God would accept that. But Abel had faith in the sacrifice ordained by God. God showed mankind the kind of sacrifice required when he slew the animal. But Cain chose another way. Abel chose God's way. Every other religion teaches us to earn our way to God. Christianity is the only, and I don't want to say religion, but it is the only relationship that teaches that God came to us because we could not go to him. No matter how hard we tried, the way to the tree of life was blocked. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. He did not wait for us. To become holy. He did not wait for us to be righteous. He did not wait for us to earn our way. But because he loved us. While we were yet sinners. He died for us. He died for us before we ever did a thing for him. He didn't wait for us to get things right. He knew that we could never get things right. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Other religions have systems of rules to appease their God. Religion is something you wear, something you put on, some work that you do, do to earn the favor of God. But Christianity is a relationship 
with God through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Other religions give us a list of things to do and not to do. And, you know, there are, these are the things that you do in hopes of getting into heaven. But Christianity freed us from the laws and the ordinances and requires we accept the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way. And we were separated from the way that leads to God, that leads to Eden, that leads to the presence of the Lord, that leads to everlasting life. Completely separated. We could do nothing to earn our way back. A price had to be paid. And the blood of animals could not do it. It was only symbolic of the one who was to come. Jesus Christ, the ultimate and final sacrifice who bought us, who purchased us, who made restitution and restored us who were lost. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. May this word go out as a seed into the hearts of all who hear it. Lord, we thank you for coming. We thank you for making a way. We thank you, Lord, for providing a, a sacrifice. We appreciate you, Lord. And we give ourselves to you, the living and the true God, the way, the truth, and the life. In the name of Jesus Christ. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart i love your